Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we play excerpts of a talk given by Professor Aviva Chomsky. I had the honor of hosting her April 29th at a KPFA Berkeley, California virtual event. Avi Chomsky talked about her new book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. Today on the Project Censored Show, we play excerpts of that talk and the Q&A that followed. Again, today's program, Aviva Chomsky, Central America's Forgotten History. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. April 29th this year, I had the honor of hosting Professor Aviva Chomsky for a KPFA Project Censored sponsored virtual event over Zoom. Aviva Chomsky was discussing her just released book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. And now, Professor Avi Chomsky. Aviva Chomsky is Professor of History and Coordinator of Latin American Studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. Her books include, most recently, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration, out from Beacon Press just earlier this month in April, also, Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal, A History of the Cuban Revolution, Linked Labor Histories, New England, Columbia, and the Making of a Global Working Class, They Take Our Jobs, and 20 Other Myths About Immigration, and West Indian Workers and the United Fruit Company in Costa Rica. Avi Chomsky has been active in Latin American solidarity and immigrants' rights movements for several decades. Tonight, she's here to speak about her most recent book, just out, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. Please welcome Professor Avi Chomsky. Thank you so much, Mickey. So I thought I would start out by telling you why I wrote the book and then talk to you a little bit about what's in the book, what I argue, and then connect it to some of the things that our president and vice president have been talking about over the past two weeks or so, because of course, I didn't know when I wrote it, how timely it was going to be when it came out, but it turned out to be quite timely. I teach Latin American history and I work on immigration. As you know, I've published several books on immigration. One of the main things that I feel like there's such huge memory gaps. And one of the ones that I feel with my students is during the 1980s, I was in Berkeley and the Central American revolutions and the US policy towards Central America were so overwhelming in our political consciousness of those of us who, and not only in Berkeley, I think um, on many campuses around the country and not only on campuses, our opposition to US policy, our analysis of why the United States did what it did, but also our sense of hope in the revolutions of Central America were just so central to my formation and to the formation of so many people who I knew. And it seems like so much of that has disappeared down the memory hole. If I wanna mention the massacre of the Jesuits at the Central American University in 1989 or the assassination of Archbishop Romero or the Nicaraguan revolution, my students don't know what I'm talking about. All of those things have just been erased. And even my students from Central America, and I have many students from Central America, most of them say their parents never talked to them about why they came here, about 
the wars, about the revolutions, about the histories of their own countries. I teach a course on Central American history, and of course I teach on Central America in my Latin America courses. But another reason that I wrote this book is that I found it very hard to find something to assign to teach Central America. Back in the 1980s, 1990s, there was a proliferation of books aimed at general audiences that tried to explain what was going on in Central America. Since the 1990s, there's been a proliferation of scholarship, but it's been very scholarly scholarship and not the kind of thing you can recommend to a friend or assign in a class necessarily. And I found that when I wanted a general book, I was going back to things that were published in the 1980s and 1990s. And of course, did not tell us incorporate all of the new scholarship or tell us about what has been happening since the 1990s or connect those revolutions of the 1980s to today's migration. So that was something that I really had in mind when I started writing this book. Another thing is the extent to which I feel Central America's history is here in the United States right now and yet invisible to most outsiders people who are outside the Central American immigrant community. People who lived through the war, war criminals, it's all being played out in communities like Lynn, Massachusetts and Providence, Rhode Island, in Guatemalan communities, in Salvadoran communities. And there's been several cases in the last three or four years of sensational arrests of well-known war criminals from El Salvador and Guatemala, people who were living quiet, invisible lives as landscapers or cooks in, in cities around the United States, invisible at least to the non-Central American US public, very well known in their communities frequently as to who they were. So, so much of the drama that we read about and heard about in the 1980s, it's not over and it's happening in our cities and towns around the United States today. Finally, I wrote the book because people have been talking about immigration. I've been talking about immigration. And if you listened to our vice president speaking with the president of Guatemala, she said, finally, we're going to address the root causes. And President Biden has also been talking about addressing the root causes of immigration. And she listed many of the causes that I talk about in my book. In fact, she could have even been referring to the title of my book. She talked about poverty, violence, corruption. She used the term roots. I used the term roots. She talked about climate change and its effect, drought, hurricanes. But she stopped there. That is, she didn't talk about the causes of all of those things. In the minds of our political leaders, poverty, violence, corruption, climate change, those are all just facts of life that don't require explanation. What I want to do in my book is explain why is Central America so poor? Why is there so much violence? Why is there so much corruption? What are the causes of climate change? So I wanted to go well beyond what our political leaders seem to think of as the roots to talk about what are the roots of those roots. So of course I need to do that by looking back through history. And really I feel that the histories of the United States and Central America are so intertwined over the last at least 150, 200 years that it's hard to even 
disentangle them to talk about, well, what is the United States without Central America? And what is Central America without the United States? So I thought I would read to you just a page or so of the book where I delve into that argument, which is really at the heart of the history that I go through. So it's a section that begins on page 40, in case you have a copy of the book, called Tangled Histories, Colonialism and Progress. And I put progress in quotation marks. As Central American elites sought to build their nations in the decades after independence, many saw the United States as their model. And the Central American countries obtained independence in the early 19th century through a process that began they were originally part of Mexico and then broke off from Mexico as the United Provinces of Central America. And then the countries that we know of as the Central American countries split out of the United Provinces of Central America. So by the end of the 1830s, the countries as we know them today, more or less, had become independent. Like their US counterparts, Central American government and economic power holders believed that Indians were an obstacle to progress and modernity. And remember, of course, that when the United States became independent, it was a small strip along the East Coast. And that one of the causes of the movement for independence in the United States was the fact that the British colonizers, who we euphemistically tend to call colonists, as if they weren't colonizers, but they were colonizers, the British colonizers who led the struggle for independence in the United States were angry because the British crown was putting limits on white settlement and on white settler expansion. So unlike practically every other anti-colonial revolution, the US anti-colonial revolution was a revolution fought by the colonizers themselves. It was not fought by the colonized people, Native Americans, African Americans. It did not expel the colonizers, it gave more power to the colonizers because it removed the restraint that the British crown had placed on the colonizers. So that independence was followed immediately by more colonialism, more colonial expansion, and the United States expanded from this small strip along the East Coast to cover the entire continent. So seeing Indians as an obstacle to progress and modernity is something that Central American elites shared with the colonizers of the United States. But for the United States, Central America as a whole embodied the political and economic backwardness they attributed to Indians and sought to overcome by US imposed progress. For the United States, Central America represented an extension of the American West, a land inhabited by savages that had to be subdued. Quote, that the stewardship of the more civilized United States would benefit these savages, whether or not they recognized it, were points of such impressive consensus that from the mid 19th century onward, the border ceased to have much meaning when it came to determining the national interest and the right to pursue it explained historian Matthew Fry Jacobson. Bolivar, the Latin American independence leader, had warned of the threat of direct US intervention in Latin American affairs. Less visibly, but perhaps just as insidiously, the United States example infiltrated the minds of elite Latin Americans who were trying to build nation and state. 
as well as poor majorities who labored for elites in the export economies for subsistence or for access to the consumer goods that came to symbolize US prosperity for many. Comparing their own realities unfavorable, unfavorably to the US example, some sought to mimic or adopt US ways. Central American elites often invited US economic or even military intervention in pursuit of their own goals. They taught their children English and sent them to study at US institutions. Some also resented US racism, blamed US imperialism for their country's problems and fought against it. William Walker's 1855 invasion of Nicaragua spurred a violent and united rejection and a long memory. It also, quote, paradoxically strengthened elite Nicaraguans infatuation with the US road to modernity, according to historian Michel Gobat. With the gold rush traffic, Nicaragua, quote, eagerly adopted a wide array of new US goods and cultural practices, as well as US ideals of technological progress and enterprise. But Walker also brought, quote, a highly exclusionary and bellicose strand of US manifest destiny that claimed Latin Americans could not be Americanized through the civilizing force of US culture and trade, but had to be violently subordinated, if not physically exterminated. The much longer US occupation of Nicaragua between 1912 and 1933 had similarly paradoxical effects. The occupation brought bankers and Protestant missionaries, as well as Marines. Nicaraguan elites aspired to the kind of capitalist progress and national strength that the United States seemed to embody. But by taking over Nicaragua's finances and challenging the Catholic Church, occupiers unsettled the power of these same elites and turned many of them against the occupiers. Central America's governing elites thus juggled adherence to European and white supremacist ideas idealization of US versions of progress that required eliminating or assimilating their own indigenous populations, and nervous resentment against US arrogance that lumped all Central Americans into the quote, savage category. Tensions over the nature of their countries and their relations with the United States were deeply racialized. Would Euro-descended Central American elites identify with the indigenous majorities of their countries in challenging US colonial attitudes and structures? Or would they ally with US power holders who identified Indians and Central Americans in general as backward threats that needed to be exterminated, either literally or culturally through assimilation into Euro-dominated culture? You're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue with this talk by Avi Chomsky, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. Stay with us. I want to go over three, well, maybe four, three waves of U.S.-sponsored economic development in Central America, starting in the 19th century with the revolutionary interlude of the post-World War II period and look at how they built on each other and brought us to where we are today, in particular with the question of migration. So the first period I look at grows directly out of the quote that I just read, that is the late 19th century formation of what we could call the coffee and banana states of Central America. The period after independence was one 
of US intervention, civil war, but by the late 19th century, we have state consolidation on this export-oriented model of coffee in the Pacific Highland regions of Central America under the control of Spanish-descended and other European immigrant elites and bananas on the Atlantic coast of Central America, in particular Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, although I don't focus much on Costa Rica in the book, under the control of the United Fruit Company. So every country except El Salvador, which has no Atlantic coast, had a strong US influence in the Atlantic region. The United Fruit Company tended to be the largest landholder in the country and established this sort of model of industrial agriculture, bringing migrant workers both from the British West Indies and indigenous people from the highlands to form a sort of a state within a state on the Atlantic coast. And there were a couple of other US fruit companies. They all ended up consolidating. But the Central American states themselves were more coffee states than banana states. That is, the elites who formed the states represented the coffee producers. Now, in order to produce coffee, they needed two things. They needed land and labor. And this is where indigenous people came in. That is, just as progress and expansion in the United States required the dispossession of indigenous populations, Central America's coffee states also required land. That meant the dispossession of indigenous populations. And it required labor, which meant the extraction of labor from indigenous populations through a number of different types of forced labor systems. All of this required a great deal of violence. So these states were highly militarized states, forming police force after police force in the interests of dispossession and labor compulsion. So the very origins of these states, like those of the United States, but subordinate to the United States, so the banana industry was completely controlled by the United States. The coffee industry less so, although increasingly the United States was the main market for the coffee and increasingly took over these countries' finances. So while the coffee growers themselves were not Americans, the coffee grower economy shifted its magnetic north from Europe to the United States over the course of the end of the 19th and into the 20th century. So it was a state that was highly repressive and exploitative, but extremely profitable. And all of the political leaders adopted this ideology of order and progress. That was kind of the slogan of Latin America's 19th century dictatorships, that the indigenous populations had to be subdued, they had to be dispossessed, and they had to be coerced into labor in order for the countries to progress along the lines in the section that I was reading. And state-sponsored European immigration was also part of this model to try to whiten the population. Now, of course, the United States was doing the same thing in the 19th century, excluding migration from non-white countries and promoting immigration from European countries in order to populate this lands that were being taken over and develop the economy. So a very particular racialized view of progress. The United States also intervened militarily, 
numerous times, especially in Nicaragua and Honduras, meaning that the states there were weaker, but left in Nicaragua, a really US dominated, less elite controlled and more individual personalized dictatorship in the form of Anastasio Somoza. The second period I wanted to look at, and there's a, a small interlude here, which is the Guatemalan Revolution of 1954 that brought into power a progressive government that really wanted to overturn this dependent capitalist repressive notion of progress and follow a different kind of economic model, an economic model based not on the interests of foreign investors and the export economy, but based on the interests of the population. So putting into place a slew of reforms, the revolution takes place in 1944, it's overthrown in 1954, put into place a slew of reforms, including a land reform that confiscated large unused land holdings for distribution to the population, the promotion of labor organizing and peasant organizing, granting new rights to workers, land rights to peasants, exactly the kinds of things that threatened US investors in the case of Guatemala, in particular, the United Fruit Company. But it wasn't just the United Fruit Company that was threatened by the October Revolution in Guatemala. It was also the Guatemalan coffee growing elites who were not Americans, but who were just as threatened by the mobilization of the indigenous workers who they relied on and whose super exploitation they relied on to maintain their profitability. And it was also a Cold War threat to the post-war or Cold War economic development model that the United States wanted to impose in Latin America. That this is the second wave of order and progress. And as I'm sure most of you know, the United States organized and trained an exile army and led their invasion of Guatemala, supported with US air power in 1954, overthrew the Guatemalan revolution and put into place a military dictatorship, which essentially has ruled Guatemala until at least the 1990s, if not still today putting Guatemala's military back firmly in control of the country. So the second wave of order and progress economic development is the post-war, Cold War, post-World War II, that is, Cold War wave of development. And after the Guatemalan Revolution, and most especially after the Cuban Revolution of 1959, the United States is very eager to promote itself as the bastion of global democracy and progress and to prove that capitalist economic development is in the interests of poor people, so they should not try to have revolutions against capitalist economic development. So the creation of agencies like the US Agency for International Development, the Peace Corps, the Alliance for Progress that is this word progress that keeps coming back, that the United States was going to promote economic development in Latin America in order to prevent revolution like the Cuban revolution there. Okay, we went a little too far. We have to promote real economic development now. But their model was pretty much the same old model of export-oriented economic development. That is 
we will fund infrastructure to encourage foreign investment and foreign investment should be the answer to all ills in Central America. Well, in the post-World War II period, a lot of this went into two types of agricultural exports, the promotion of a cotton industry and the promotion of a cattle industry. Now, both of these basically replicated what had happened with coffee and bananas in the 19th century, but on a larger scale. Both of them required a lot of industrial infrastructure, pesticides, fertilizers, slaughterhouses, transportation systems, US aid poured into Central America. They required land. So there was a new round of dispossession and land loss throughout the region. And they required labor, but not enough labor to employ all of the people who were dispossessed. And labor on the cotton plantations was even more harsh and toxic than labor on the banana and coffee plantations had been. So economic development was a success in terms of GDP. It was a success in broadening the elites and bringing into the picture more modernizing elites. But from the perspective of Central America's poor, it was a precisely the economic development model, the post-war economic development model, the export economies, the coffee, the cotton, and the cattle economies that led to the revolutionary movements that start to organize in the 1960s and 1970s. Now, of course, Central America is not the only place where the post-World War II period brings hopes for liberation of oppressed peoples, whether it's colonized peoples in Africa and Asia, whether it's internally colonized peoples in the United States, African-Americans, Native Americans, the Chicano movement, the Central American poor and the Cuban revolution is a huge inspiration for all of Latin America and also for Latinos in the United States. The Central American poor once again start organizing for a different kind of economy, a different kind of economic development. And now they're thinking as well of a different kind of global economy. That is the anti-colonial movements are really after independence saying we need a new international economic order. We can't continue to be exploited by foreign corporations, by international institutions like the World Bank, the International Development Bank that are putting us into debt, that are forcing us to accept economic systems that work to the benefit of foreign investors, but not to the benefit of our people. So in Guatemala, El Salvador, and Nicaragua, we have these revolutionary movements developing in the 1960s, 1970s, and the Nicaraguan revolution, of course, is triumphant in 1979 and becomes a kind of an inspiration to everybody that is in such a poor country, so dominated by the United States and by the repressive Somoza dictatorship put into place and supported by the United States, a country with practically nothing, with high illiteracy rates, with extraordinarily high poverty rates, can not only win a revolution, but can put into practice these revolutionary redistributive measures. 
And the Nicaraguan Revolution, unlike the Cuban Revolution, immediately made a commitment to democratic institutions, to organizing elections, to allowing political parties, and to creating a mixed economy. Meanwhile, the Salvadoran Revolution, uh, the FMLN, the Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front, succeeded in taking over large areas of El Salvador's territory. They never overthrew the government, but they did establish essentially a revolutionary state within a state. That is, areas that were simply not under government control, but where the FMLN became the government and organized services like schools and health clinics. And the inspiration of mobilized people with nothing, being able to create the new world and the new economy and the new society was truly inspirational around the world. And the inspiration of mobilized people with nothing, being able to create the new world and the new economy and the new society was truly inspirational around the world. It was also met with extraordinarily heavy repression, especially in Guatemala, where hundreds of thousands were killed, disappeared, displaced. Hundreds of villages were simply destroyed and wiped off the map. And in Guatemala, the counter-revolution had the added twist of Guatemalan racism, very particularly vicious kind of racism against indigenous people. Guatemala also had the largest indigenous population of the Central American countries. I can talk more about that in the questions if you want. But vicious repression in all three countries sponsored by the United States. That is, the United States simply defined all of these revolutions as communist and organized the Contra War to overthrow the government of Nicaragua, completely ignoring the elections in 1984 that the Sandinistas won, and to help the governments of El Salvador and Guatemala crush the revolutionary movements in those countries. Some congressional opposition forced the Reagan administration to go underground with a lot of this. Israel became a conduit for US aid to Guatemala. You all know about the Iran-Contra affair, a lot of covert funding of the Contras and trying to work around and pressuring Congress. So in 1990, the Sandinistas lost the 1990 election under huge threat from the United States, which made it extremely clear that if the Sandinistas won this election too, the war would continue. And in 1992, the peace treaty was signed in El Salvador in 1996 in Guatemala. Now the signing of the peace treaties made some political changes in El Salvador and Guatemala, opened the political system, established certain democratic institutions, allowed the revolutionary movements to participate in politics, to lay down their arms and to be reorganized as political parties and participate in the political system. But the peace treaties really did not challenge the social and economic causes of the revolution, the highly skewed land systems, the extraordinary poverty, the lack of rights of the poor, the very things that had caused the revolutions were not addressed in the peace treaties. Instead, the peace treaties opened the door to a full-fledged neoliberal assault on Central America from the United States. 
the negotiation of the new free trade agreement, CAFTA, and the wholesale imposition of the late 20th century third wave of progress under US auspices. And the new export economy that the United States foreign investment export economy um, that the United States had in mind for Central America in the late 1990s and into the 2000s was based on a somewhat different set of economic activities. CAFTA opened the door to the maquiladora sector in Central America. And if you choose to examine the labels on the clothes that you're wearing right now, I would guess that probably 90% of the people who are listening to this have a label somewhere in their clothes that says made in El Salvador, made in Honduras, made in Nicaragua, made in Guatemala. So the maquiladora sector, which is also connected to the neoliberal restructuring deindustrialization of the United States that is opening Central America as a place that US factories can go to escape the regulated labor market, the minimum wages, the health and safety regulations, the environmental regulations that they were subject to in the United States to escape all of this into a sort of investor's paradise in Central America. The new neoliberal economy was also based on tourism, again, in the hands of foreign investors and for the benefit of US and European tourists. It was based on extractivism. That is a huge push for mega projects, especially in mining and energy sectors. That is now that the wars were over, all of the land had been opened up for foreign investment. Also new agro export crops. And again, if you look in your refrigerator or in your fruit basket, you'll find that it's not only bananas and coffee that come from Central America now, it's broccoli and snap peas and all kinds of unexpected fruits and vegetables that you find on the supermarket shelves come from Central America. And also some invisible agro-export products. One of the biggest one is oil palm, palm oil, African palm, huge plantations that are used not only in manufacturing palm oil in, in practically every kind of processed food that if you have anything that comes in a package, one of the ingredients with the list of ingredients, one of them will be palm oil, but even more so as an alternative source of energy, that is as an ingredient in gasoline. So all this talk about green energy, a lot of it relies on very repressive and dirty extractive and productive systems, much of it in the third world whether it's lithium for your batteries or ethanol for your car, these don't come from nowhere. They come from the land and labor of Latin Americans. So this is the new export economy that has been put into place. And like the earlier two export economies has required a large degree of violence to maintain and to crush popular resistance of which there is still a lot in Central America, especially to extractivism. So peace and neoliberalism, I would say, in many ways is the root cause of all of the things that Kamala Harris said were the problems that are causing 
migration out of Central America, poverty, violence, corruption, drought, hurricanes, and climate change. Just one other piece of the drought and hurricanes is that as the productive lands are taken over more and more by export agriculture, poor people are pushed more and more into unproductive lands, which are more susceptible to drought and hurricane. In addition to, of course, the United States being the major emitter of CO2 and thus the cause of climate change that contributes to extreme weather events. So I wanted to end by looking at the policies that our political leaders are now putting into place. They claim that they're going to start a new era of collaboration and being good neighbors once again to Central America. And yet what Biden and Harris are proposing looks very much like the same old economic development model that has caused all of Central America's problems. President Biden proposed his plan for security and prosperity in Central America and promised $4 billion over four years to promote security and prosperity. Now, those two words might sound kind of nice, but in the history of Central America, and perhaps in the history of the United States, security means military and police. Security means arms. Security means security for some through the repression of others. And a lot of this security is actually going to border security. That is, President Biden wants to expand something that he began as vice president during the Obama administration, the second Obama presidency, the militarization of Mexico's southern border. And Biden is now expanding this to the militarization of Guatemala's southern border, the militarization of the interior of Guatemala, and even the militarization of Honduras's southern border and the interior of Honduras to prevent migrants from leaving. So security, but security for whom? When we send military aid to Central America, it's pretty clear who the beneficiaries and who the victims are going to be. Prosperity, well, the United States has one vision of prosperity, and that is inviting in foreign investment, export-oriented production in the hands of foreign investors. So lots of aid has gone to Central America over the last 60 years, 60, 70, 80 years. But all of the aid has gone to promote the very model of economic development that relies on and perpetuates poverty for the majority of Central Americans. Furthermore, some of the aid is conditioned on security cooperation. In a really heinous move, a few weeks ago, Biden offered a paltry number of vaccines out of the US surplus to Mexico in exchange for Mexican promises to collaborate with the United States on its anti-migration agenda. Speaking with the Guatemalan president, Vice President Harris promised the first 310 million, but that was conditioned on the creation of a joint border task force that is going to send US DHS officials to Guatemala's southern border to work with and train 
some of the 7,000 Guatemalan troops and the 12 new internal checkpoints in Guatemala to prevent migration. So I thought I would just end with a statement by State Department spokesperson Jen Psaki, who summarized the new administration's policy by saying, the objective is to make it more difficult to make the journey. This does not mean define a humane immigration policy. They like to talk about the crisis at the border. They want to get rid of the crisis at the border by pushing the crisis back into Central America. They don't want to acknowledge the history, but I do. You're tuned to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We'll continue with this talk by Avi Chomsky, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. Stay with us. I will turn it over to Mickey to take some of your questions. Avi Chomsky, we have several questions that I want to share. One of our attendees says, Dear Professor Chomsky the Younger, how did the Treaty of Paris in 1898, ending the war between the U.S. and the Empire of Spain, change the attitude and influence of the U.S. in the former zone of Spanish influence in the Western Hemisphere? The people who study U.S. history like to talk about the Spanish-American War as the beginning of U.S. imperialism, and I really argue against that in my book. I say there's an absolute continuity from 1608 to 2021 in terms of the United States, British colonialism, and the U.S. colonialism being an absolute continuity with British colonialism. There's no break there. The American Revolution was a colonizer's project, and it broke free of the restrictions that the British crown was putting on these particular colonizers. So the colonial project began in 1608, and it was a project of white settlement and dispossession of Native Americans. And and so 1898 was only one more step in this long process. So 1898 ends with, and you said Western Hemisphere, but I would also point out that 1898, the Spanish-American War ends with the United States acquisition of the Philippines is the largest colony that it acquires then. And other islands in the Pacific, also in 1898, but not as part of the Spanish-American War. So this expansion in the Pacific is also 1898. But in the Western Hemisphere, it's Cuba and Puerto Rico that become Puerto Rico, a direct U.S. colony, Cuba, a U.S. protectorate. And basically, Congress decides they don't want Cuba as a colony because there's too few white people there. The United States has all kinds of names for its colonies. It calls them territories. It calls them commonwealths and protectorates and this and that. But they're all just basically colonies. But prior to 1898, the colonies were taken with the idea that they would eventually become states once they had a majority white population. And that's part of the reason for the promotion of European migration. And, you know, this is something interesting. When I was Studying Latin American history, we learned about state-sponsored immigration in the early 20th century because they were trying to whiten their populations. And everyone was like, oh, Latin America did that? How awful. We did that in the United States, too. We just don't learn it that way. But certainly state-sponsored immigration in order to whiten the population was part of the project here, too. So Puerto Rico becomes and still is a U.S. colony. 
Cuba becomes a protectorate, and really the Cuban experience is quite similar to that of the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and Nicaragua that is undergoing a long U.S. occupation in the early 20th century and establishing a government that is basically and a military under U.S. auspices and U.S. control and turning into a paradise for U.S. foreign investment. Another one of our participants would like it if you could mention President Theodore Roosevelt's corollary to the Monroe Doctrine, which stated the United States had the right to send military to enforce payments of private debts such to the U.S. banks. And of course, that again, going all the way back, you went the 1608. There's a lot of signposts on the way here from the Monroe Doctrine to Manifest Destiny all the way through to the Spanish-American War here and now the Roosevelt Corollary. Can you talk about that, particularly related to the enforcement of payments of private debts? In terms of justifying its expansion and interventions, especially in countries that theoretically were sovereign countries, the Monroe Doctrine in 1823 was basically a warning saying that any European intervention in the Americas would prompt a U.S. intervention to protect Latin American countries from any kind of European intervention. The Latin American countries did not ask for this, but this was how it was framed by President Monroe. And indeed, the Roosevelt Corollary in 1906 expanded that, that the threat of European intervention included economic intervention, that is, Latin American countries were not allowed to become indebted to European powers because that could promote European intervention. You know, it's kind of like the way we talk about China now <laughs> was the way we talked about Europe in the 19th century, or the way we talked about the USSR during the Cold War, or the way we're talking about Russia now. Um, so the Roosevelt Corollary expands it in two ways. One, that um, so the US has to take over all economic obligations and then can intervene to ensure that those economic obligations are paid. That is, it can intervene to impose its economic model if any government deviates from the economic model that the United States demands, but also that the governments have to maintain internal order. So if a government fails to maintain internal order, that is security, that is fails to suppress any popular movements for social change by military means, the United States will go in and do it. And this was the rationale for the US interventions in Haiti, Dominican Republic, and Nicaragua, and long occupations there was precisely the Roosevelt Corollary. Professor Chomsky, there are several questions that are looking at different countries in particular. One of our participants asks to please talk about Cuba and how people in the U.S. can best support what's happening in Cuba. Well, just like the mothers of Matagalpa said to me all those years ago, what people in the United States can really do is to try to reduce U.S. aggression against Cuba. That is to restore normal diplomatic relations with Cuba, to restore remittances, to restore travel, to allow Cubans to travel to the United States. One of the most insidious recent revelations about the Biden regime was the 2020 annual report by the Health and Human Services Department that said that one of its successes was countering malign influences in the Americas, that the U.S. government succeeded in convincing Brazil not to accept the Russian vaccine, 
and persuaded Panama not to accept Cuban doctors who had volunteered to help out with Panama's health system. So the United States should end its diplomatic, military, economic, and political war against Cuba. That's the best thing we can do to help Cubans. We should also travel to Cuba and break the information blockade because one of the most revelatory things I ever do with my students is take them to Cuba. And that just completely changes their entire worldview. Like, wow, they've been lying to us all this time. Cuba's nothing like what they told us it was going to be. So Professor Chomsky, one of our participants, thanks you for your work and presentation and would like if you could talk a little bit about the history of changes in U.S. immigration procedures pertaining to refugees attempting to escape U.S. imposed conditions in Central America. I'm not sure if the person who wrote the question means changes over the long history, like in the 1980s and 1990s, or changes like in the last few weeks or since January 20th. So I'll just try to really quickly talk about both. From most of post-World War II history, until 1980, the United States did not accept the international law on refugees and defined refugees very narrowly as refugees fleeing communism. So basically the only people who could enter the United States as refugees before the Carter administration were refugees from communism. Under Carter, we finally accepted the international refugee law, which defines refugees as people who are being persecuted because of membership in a group. Now, even that is a rather narrow definition. And one of the things that Donald Trump did was reduce the number of groups that the United States considers appropriate. You can't just be persecuted. You have to be persecuted because you belong to a group. So young men who are threatened by gangs or women who are threatened by domestic violence now no longer belong to a group. So during most of the wars in Central America, the United States accepted barely any refugees from the U.S.-sponsored governments in Guatemala and El Salvador. And then there was a big lawsuit by the American Baptist Church, the ABC lawsuit, that forced the U.S. to revisit many of those asylum cases. And international law still defines refugees in rather narrow ways. And until very recently, all Cubans were sort of automatically considered refugees under the Cuban Adjustment Act. Until 1995, all you had to do was try to leave Cuba. And then after Clinton revised it and set up the wet foot, dry foot policy, you had to actually get to a U.S. border, but were still automatically considered a refugee. Now the United States is clearly violating international law in terms of asylum because everybody has the right under international law to request asylum and to be considered for asylum. And President Trump's remain in Mexico policy, which does not allow people to enter the United States to request asylum, it forces them to remain in Mexico. That's a clear violation of international law, but it has not yet been revised by Biden despite the big promises he made. The only people who he's made a change for at the border is unaccompanied minors. One of our participants would like it if you could talk a little bit about the particular historical racism that you had mentioned in Guatemala. So Guatemala had a much larger indigenous population and Guatemala also has much higher mountains than any of the other countries. So Guatemala's coffee economy developed somewhat differently in that it pushed communities further and further up into the highlands, that is out of the areas where coffee could be produced, 
but it relied on indigenous villages as sources of migrant labor. So Indian subsistence villages were an integral part of the coffee economy in Guatemala in ways that they weren't in other parts of Central America. So that meant that the larger numbers and the fact that the economy depended on the continued existence of Indian subsistence communities, but of course also on the continuing poverty and repression of indigenous communities, meant that in other parts of Central America adopted a sort of more of a Mexican style myth of mestizaje, like, oh, we're all mixed, we're the cosmic race. Uh, that certainly doesn't mean that there was no racism and that indigenous people were not and do not continue to be oppressed, but it's a different way of manifesting overt and structural and subtle racism. It was just different in Guatemala. So Guatemala's indigenous languages are still really widely spoken. Indigenous dress is still quite common. And there's no firm numbers, but somewhere between 30 and 60% of Guatemala's population identifies as and is identified as indigenous. That's not true anywhere else in Central America. But that also means that anti-indigenous racism is much more overt, direct, and violent in Guatemala than it is elsewhere in Central America. The Guatemalan so-called civil war was really a mass genocide against the indigenous population. So there's both the act of genocide and the denial of the genocide, the association of indigenous people with revolutionaries, and then the need to cover up and deny the genocide that has occurred. And Professor Chomsky, the final question of the evening, how was Costa Rica able to avoid the domination and exploitation that ravaged other countries in Central America? Costa Rica, like New England, had the advantage of not having any resources. So there was nothing to exploit. So colonizers, instead of setting up systems of mass enslavement and export economies and extraction, they just had to farm. You know, you've probably heard of the resource curse. So Costa Rica suffered from the opposite of the resource curse, the non-resource blessing. Professor Aviva Chomsky, Salem State University, we have been discussing her most recent book, Central America's Forgotten History, Revolution, Violence, and the Roots of Migration. You can learn more at beacon.org. These are at Beacon Press. And many of Professor Chomsky's books are available there. Many of them are available as audio. Professor Aviva Chomsky, thank you again so much for joining us this evening. Thank you so much for having me here. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored Show. I am your host and executive producer, Mickey Huff. Special thanks for today's program goes to Ken Preston, Bob Baldock, as well as Ephraim Colbert and Jose Gonzalez. They're all involved with putting on these great events for KPFA Speaker Series. And I definitely want to thank our senior producer, Anthony Fest. The Project Censored show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. You can learn more at projectcensored.org where you can also contact us or you can find the archives to all of our programs at projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter while we're still there. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. We'll see you next time.